The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the first in the new series of the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we look at a unique collaboration between two artists based in Trinidad, the British-born painter Chris Ophelia and the Jamaican-born sculptor Jasmine Thomas Gervin. But first, artists on film. At the end of August, Adrian Noble's film Mrs Lowry and Son arrived in UK cinemas. Its subject is the relationship between the painter, L.S. Lowry, played by Timothy Spall, and his mother, played by Vanessa Redgrave. This is not the first time that Timothy Spall has played a popular British artist. In 2014, he starred in Mike Lee's epic biopic of J.M.W. Turner, called Mr. Turner. Tim came to the studio in August to discuss Lowry and the intimate yet fraught relationship captured in Noble's film. The painting by Mr Ellis Lowry coming from the mill is confusing and appears to have been painted by a child. It is an insult to the people of Lancashire. Mr Denby is not impressed, Laurie. He decrees it an insult. <laughs> Can't you burn them, Mother? Where has he got you, this hobby? Painting these squalid industrial scenes that nobody wants to buy. It's not a hobby, Mother. Tim, Mrs Larry and Son began as a radio play. It then became a, a stage production, and now it's a film. What? How did you first encounter it? Well, I had no idea about the first two. I just encountered it as a script, uh, which was sent to me, uh, which I which I read, and I immediately uh, was intrigued by and enthralled by. Um, so I had no idea it had a theatrical history or a radio history. So um, um, no, that's it. I read it, and I was uh, aware of Lowry, obviously, and in a sense, like everybody, and mainly imbibed it through merchandising and various things but so I was when I read it it made immediate sense to me uh, and it made me want to be much to investigate him and the work. Tell me about how that process happened because is it right you sort of went straight up to to the Lowry in Salford and, and started to look at the paintings? Yeah I waited until it looked like it was going to become a reality. The thing is about independent films they they present it to you and they disappear. So when it started to look like um, a reality, I went straight up there and spent about five or six hours just staring at the paintings all together. It was, there wasn't very many people there. I went unannounced, so I didn't get a guided tour. And um, I just you know, immediately started to see something in it, that, particularly in the light of having read the piece, that there was something very, very um, much more interesting than than I'd originally perceived, and, and I don't want to speak for other people, but I think much a deeper artist than I'd uh, understood before that. You know, I think it, one of the things about Lowry is there's an apparent simplicity about his work, and indeed mm. there is a very there's a real simplicity about the script to a certain degree. But it has rather like Lowry's work, it has hidden hidden depths. Indeed, there is an apparent simplicity about him and about his work. But as he's one of the expert biographers of him, so said of him, he is the most complex, simple man I've ever met in my life. Uh, and that is, in a sense, once you start to look at the work uh, with a knowledge of what made him, what contributed to his character, you, you see that there is a... There is a lot more going on. There's, um, you know, and the relationship that this film explores, which is the incredibly close, um, some might even say abusive relationship that he has with his mother, kind of informs it as well. Um, there's a, you know, and um, the difficultness of this and the kind of mutual reliability on each other in this uh and this tension between looking after somebody, being enthralled to somebody's every need, emotional and physical requirement, wanting to please them, and the one thing that you're deeply talented at or have your own uh, personal uh, thing to offer is the thing that you do for that person. And that thing, rather than pleases that person, actually offends them and makes you makes them want makes them um 
duty-bound to tell you to try and stop doing what you're doing. They're really quite brutal moments in the in the film, aren't they? Where she, where Larry's mother tells him, reads back to him some very severe criticism, for instance. And it's it's you can tell, you know, it's this is this is, I guess, the the difficult thing for an actor to pull off, isn't it? To to capture the feelings of the man as his mother reads this horrific criticism back to him. Yeah, um, that is true, and it and it, it would have been. And in the film, it is painful for him, but it's a lifetime of it. In, in a sense, um, what she's doing in defence of her, I think what she's trying to do is protect him from himself. She doesn't want him to embarrass himself and therefore her, mainly probably her, because, um, you know, the story explains in the telling of it that they were brought down somewhat slightly uh, in status social status by the fact that the father had to move they had to move to a poorer part of Manchester so all of his work the paintings that he does the compel the compulsion that he has to paint these to her ugly grim dirty pictures of their local environment constantly remind her of the state she's in not only that but the fact that she thinks they're not very good and that they're actually badly painted. Um, so she's, you know, he, he he's in this impossible position, really, where, you know, he was a carer. He was her carer. He literally was. That's the modern term. He was, and, it, and that's what he was. He he would collect rent all day in the environments. He worked for a, a estate agent all his life, same company. He went round the Salford Streets, collecting the rent uh, for that real estate company, that uh, estate agents. Um, and then he would come home, he would cook his mother's tea, make sure she was fine. He would sit with her all evening. They would talk about the day. He would make sure she was comfortable. Uh, he would then, when she uh, spoke to her, and then when she went to sleep, he would go up into his attic and he would paint. Now, that was his life, collecting rent, looking after his mother, painting few friends uh, but that was it um but up in that cellar was his private life up in his up in his attic was that private life that that place where this situation he was in where he'd been himself uh, pretty much loathed the area when they when they moved there when they had to go there um didn't like it at all um and shared his parents um, dislike of it but there was one particular day where he says he had an epiphany and he started to see something in it and was compelled to record it and to paint it. And so once that had got him and he knew that that would, be, that would make him a, have his own authorship, his own signature as an artist, once that uh, seed was planted in his chest, it grew and grew and grew. And that is the work that we now uh, know him from. There's this letter that plays a hugely important role in the film isn't there this letter from a london gallery yes it has an almost sort of magical significance yes. in, in in the story doesn't it it does yeah you you see him receiving this letter and making phone calls at the beginning it's mysterious and then quite early on you you see him reading it um and being incredibly uh touched by moved excited uh, over the moon because it's an affirmation somebody at last is like in his 50s you know early 50s somebody at last has seen something in his work and gets it they get that not only is the work um original it is also not um representative it's not painting it's not a pictorial re representation of what he's seeing it's actually um a composite a feeling something that's much more um profound than just purely landscape painting and he holds on to that but of course he's gonna tell his mother that it's also offering him possibly an exhibition in london but he knows that this is a very very serious prospect to give to his mother because he thinks she possibly will take a, um, a good view of it and be proud. But he also knows that somewhere along the line he's going to suffer. And it's true. And that's what, exactly what happens. 
one of the things I'm struck by in the film is that that you grounded your depiction of him very much in sort of documentary film of him talking. So there is a sort of sense of um, inhabiting that character based on the real depiction of him in, in documentaries, you know. But but at the same time, you have to invent this emotional world, which we don't really have any documentary access to, do we? No, I, I did. I, I, uh, there's not much um, footage of him actually speaking. It's footage of him walking about uh, quite a lot. There's a wonderful 15-minute film made in 1953, Brilliant film, uh, and but that's got a lot of his him talking, and it's got a lot of him uh, speaking, you know, just uh, recorded. But um, um, I thought, you know, when I saw him physically, oh, he's much taller than me, indifferent to me, but there was something about his loping gait, slightly awkward, um, slightly uh, gangly, sort of. Um, um, he actually walked a bit like Pluto in uh, in, in the Disney. <laughs> there was a sort of um, ungainly, and in his mother mentions this, you get the sense that he was a big sort of lumbering boy that that she was rather lumped, was rather sort of didn't grow out to be the sort of refined creature that was the child that she brought up to be, you know. So that was another insult to her injury of his paintings, the fact that he was this sort of, I think she was mildly, the story, as to whether it's true in the film, is that he was she was mildly embarrassed by them. But there is extant material saying that, you know, she had a difficult birth with him, she was a, a sort of natural-born uh, invalid. Uh, he was trained um, uh, by her uh, when he was young to go, to go around with a stool in case she ever swooned. He was prepared. So, you know, when you're doing that when you're four, you're, and, you know, you've, you're going to live with your parents all your life and never have an intimate relationship with a man or a woman or anything beyond that. You're, that's your natural state. So he grew up being totally enthralled to her, every requirement. And he did it willingly. Uh, it sounds like a cruelty, but these, this was his life. This is how he, this is how he got his, you know, he, he, he did his duty, but this is where he got his love. And this was the only sort of intimate, um, you know, only exchange of uh, unconditional love, however difficult she was, that he got. So I think, and I think this mutual, um, this 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 um, relationship, as difficult as it was for him, was important to him. Also, it was important because she was a stubborn, difficult woman, and it's a very quiet part of him that he has inherited, which manifests itself in sticking to the compulsion of having to paint what she doesn't like. In a sense, there's a slight... Um, there's a revolt in that against her as well, I think, as as well as a privacy against that incarceration of that relationship that he possibly held on to as an inspiration, knowing... And also, the, but the double... The, 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 the sort of terrible paradox of wanting to please somebody, know what you're doing isn't, but knowing that in a sense, you have to do it. And in a sense, it's so personal to you. It's the only thing that you've got you can hang on to. So to talk about simple but complex. I mean, that <laughs> to me is an... And I think when you look at the work, that emotional pull and that depth, that, that kind of unusual paradox is in those paintings. There is a simplicity, but there is also a real emotion. There's a kind of... It's a kind of bleak beauty in them that represents his own domestic life as well. Um, it's difficult to talk about, apart from sounding a bit highfalutin or a little bit... But I, I see it in that work. It might be just because I've spent a lot of time trying to delve in and excavate his psychology, but I think it's in those paintings. That's what makes them far more interesting than just these quaint pictorial representations of a decaying industrial powerhouse. They're self-portraits, as far as I'm concerned. And the, not the people. The people are less like him, apart from the few self-portraits, and there are not many of them. But the people 
uh, the buildings are much more representative of him. If you can put a person in the building, which I think you can, you yeah. know. And, and he says and there's a line in the film where he where he suggests that, doesn't he? You know, he does. Every brick is is yeah. me. Yeah, and I, 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 that I think was probably one of the things that struck me, and I made that connection uh, from that into the work. And once you see that the that these buildings are alive as well with that, and the way they're juxtaposed against one another. And there's a far, far more, more sophistication in the painting than it seems once you start looking at them as well. The colour choice, the way he intermingles them, what he does with... It's simple, but changing the perspective and so on and so forth. It, it's it's a lot more, as I say, simple and complicated at the same time. It's a total contradiction. Some of the most powerful scenes in the film are those really intimate moments between mother and son, the sort of tender moments. And it's then, I think... You know, it really brought home to me that I was watching virtuosic performances by both you and, and Vanessa Redgrave. Tell me what it's like to act alongside her, um, you, especially someone you must. You're obviously aware of this enormous reputation that that, that this actor has. And oh yeah, no, I'd been a I, I, I was a huge fan of hers and watching her work for years, and and I was a huge and still am because his work still a, a fan of her father's. I loved, you know, I loved Sir Michael Redgrave and uh, his work. Uh, uh, and so it was really, you know, I, I was delighted she was going to play it. And and she is very, very um, uh, determined and was very determined to make that part her own and to, and to make it um, completely grounded within the emotion of it and, and also to pursue... It totally from that woman's point of view. So, you know, to so she she never held back on making her um, as difficult and as demanding and as as monstrous on one level. But also, I think what she manages to do in it is give there's a, she elicits a sympathy in it as well because you realise that this, this is a deeply unhappy woman, a woman that's you know, you know, almost sort of. Um, live forever in this massive disappointment you know with a with a life with a, a son's chosen job a son's inability to rise above and and uh you know this you know just this it's a it's a real it was wonderful to work with because we actually you know we each day we felt like we were trying out something new we'd just slightly look at the script always discuss it break it down and try and bring some things to it that were you know sometimes not on the page they were underneath it underneath that emotion um also you know obviously when as is always the case when people can be really horrible to someone and and it, and, and and not even know they're doing it, it can be very funny you yeah. know and i think there is quite a lot of humour when when I saw it in Edinburgh people laughed a lot at how unreasonable uh, it was and how um, outrageous some of the things she said were you know um, I'm, I'm really interested you talked about scripts there and I'm really interested in how this experience playing Lowry compared to your experience of playing J.M.W. Turner in Mike Lee's film um, because obviously Lee has a very f- famously um, collaborative way of working with actors this film had very much more of a script to begin with. How can how do you compare those two experiences? Well, you, you can't really because you spend you know when you work on a film with Mike, you spend at least six months um, laying down the bones and preparing it uh, because you start with nothing. You don't even start with an idea unless it's going to be based on like Turner and Topsy Turvy, the only two films, and Peter Lou now. Uh, the only films that are about things that have actually happened. Um, it's even then you start with absolutely nothing. Or with Turner, we just start. This is going to be a film about Turner. That's it. Nothing. So then the whole process is about building up those characters and then improvising so on and so on. I won't. It's now. Now is not the time to talk about it. But but that the film is made through the process of rehearsal and then carrying that on through an improvisation and, and so on through into the actual making it day by day, slice by slice. Now, obviously, with this, that that takes six months rehearsal and about five months to shoot. That's about a year. 
this, you start with a script, and then you have about four or five weeks to do it, which we did. We made it, you know, from rehearsal to end in about, I think, five or six weeks. And then, of course, there's the the, um, the pre-production before that, and then the editing and so on and so forth. It takes another three or four months after that. But um, you don't have the time to prepare and, and co-author it and co-build it. So, therefore, you have to bring a lot to it. You know, you have to think a lot about it and... One of the things I, I can t- learnt right from the start of working with Mike Lee was that was that about the importance of research and about thinking out and around the immediate thing about you know the background of someone's life, what they were like when they particularly what they were like when they were a child. I always think about that, what they were like when they were a child um, before all of the slices of sophistication had built them up to become you know adults um and so you know in a sense they're they're the same but different because you're still in in, you're still trying to you know there's no script with mike lee uh and then you get a film but even with the film there's only six seven eighty pages of dialogue that's just a a book you know pay and then you've got to turn that into a movie so it's the you know, and then a group, a load of people come together. Sound, you know, uh, camera, lighting, costume, everything. You know, and it's it's always um, everything I do. It feels, you know, like a, a complete leap of faith. However secure they are or not, they always feel like this group of people have come with the notion of turning this these sixty pages into something that people are gonna you know, possibly put their hand in their pocket and go and see in a cinema. Now, that's a big responsibility. And nobody, and I'm luckier to have worked on lots of films, nobody does anything. They have a good time and fun. Nobody is anything other than dedicated and devoted to try and make that work. Um, and and that's a great, it's always great when you work with a group of people coming together to try and do it. It sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but... It's not really, you know. It, it's it's such a weird thing, you know. And there's to a larger or lesser degree when you think you take a massive blockbuster like like one of the Marvel, like the um, uh, you know the superhero movies. There's still only nine. It's still only hundred pages of, of script standing there like that. You know, it's only like what's this? You know, two hundred million dollars later, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, two hundred billion dollars in the box office. But this obviously is much smaller, but it's the same process. It's just a difference. It's just telling stories from a script with cameras and sound and a lot of talented people. (laughs) Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Mrs Lowry and Son is in selected UK cinemas now. So what role do art historians play in bringing these historical artists to the screen? Jacqueline Riding was a historical and art historical consultant on Mr Turner and worked with Mike Lee again on 2018's Peter Lou, a study of the massacre of 15 people in Manchester in 1819. She also wrote the related book about the Peter Lou massacre. She joins me now. Jackie, what does an art consultant on a film do? I don't know what people normally do, but people who work on a Mike Lee film do a lot. <laughs> You're involved from the onset. With Turner, for example, Mr Turner, we it was Mike and I, really, reading books about Turner biographies, exhibition catalogues, going away thinking about it. Um, and when Mike started to develop his ideas and which aspects of Turner's life he was interested in, we would then borrow in. But it's, it's everything from reading two and a half years before the, uh, you know, somebody shouts, cut, and that's the final thing on the shoot. It's two and a half years of working from the biographies right the way through the detail. To, to the final cut. Obviously, Mike Lee has a very particular process, doesn't he? Can you tell us something about that? Yes, he... Um, so there's no script. So what he has is a sort of, as I say, you start off thinking through, reading general books on Turner, reading more specific books on Turner, on people that he was friends with, his associates at the Royal Academy and all that kind of thing. You start building up a big, grand picture and then you start to burrow in. And that's when the sort of narrative arc is created, sort of blow by blow, scene by scene. G- 
generally what's happening in each scene and, and the sort of the narrative arc, as I say. Um, and then you're also working with the actors. So once it's been cast, you as a historian, art historian, you're so also helping to narrow down the characters that will be cast. And then you start working with the actors. So there's a rehearsal period for t Mr. Turner, a rehearsal period of about five, six months. So you're working one-to-one -one with the actors or you're working in groups so Royal Academicians, for example. Um, and then he starts working with the actors as well. So once they start at that rehearsal period, he's starting to work one-to-one -one with them on their characters. And it's all very organic and based on research and what they've read and what their thoughts are about the character. And it's a real honing going on. Um, but the, it's still about character, much more than anything else. And then once you've got the narrative arc, you've got your characters, you've got your actors, you then turn up to set... You then start sort of improvising and the improvisations start getting honed down. Um, and then as those are getting honed down, there's more detail added. It's sort of, you know, sort of rehearsed. And then eventually you have your scene and you have your dialogue and your action. And then it's shot on the set. And then you move to the next set and you do exactly the same process over again. So it's very much, um, and there's everybody there. It's not just the actors. There's me, for example, sitting through the rehearsals and the uh, improvisations and so on. You've got, um, you know, members from the other heads of department, you know, costume, makeup are all there. Any notes, says Mike, after there's been a run through and everyone sort of says what they think and makes observations about the language in my case or what's happened, you know, what they're saying, what needs to be said and so on. Um, and then that's that's the process right the way through to to the final the final sort of scene. So because they have to occupy these characters so completely so that so much so that they can improvise uh, in great detail as a historical character exactly yeah. that, that that sort of grounding that you're giving them has to be immensely detailed doesn't it and i was intrigued to read that one of the characters who, who plays a relatively minor role in in the film actually read the phd thesis of, of an expert <laughs> in in that particular painter so you have yeah. i mean it, it's really granular isn't it i'm not sure all actors would take to this type of research i mean intense research like ducks to water mike as he says he mike says he works with intelligent actors so he obviously works with actors who are thrilled at being given this wonderful space and time to immerse in the character in the period and so on and these guys are amazing all of all of his actors that i've worked with are extraordinary and they love it and they end up some of them end up you see a minor character they end up being the world experts on that minor character <laughs> um because you know sometimes there's a lot of information on turner when we went to the royal academy for example to the archive um all the academicians that were actors playing academicians, they got the boxes out for them, for their specific character, for the artist. And Turner was at one end of the table, which was about 15 po you know, box files. <laughs> and he went right down the line via Constable and various other people we've heard of, Roberts and so on, and then got to the far end. There's this one box file, I can't remember the name of the artist, but they just opened up the box file and it said, there's nothing on this artist. <laughs> that's it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so in that instance, that immersion is required because there's so little on these artists. Um, so as an art historian, it's quite astonishing. You, sort of, you start to realise how relatively limited our knowledge of British art is in this in this instance in this particular instance with british art how narrow our understanding of the late 18th and early 19th century is you, you had to prepare of course for the domestic situation of turner's life and i was intrigued to read how much you had to, basically had to go into in terms of the the food that would have been prepared for him because it, it was really, it, it's such a crucial narrative in the film is his domestic circumstances. Yes, I mean the the sort of the beating heart that runs through the film is of course his his private circumstances, whether it be with um, Hannah Danby or whether it's Mrs Booth and, and obviously essentially his father. That's the kind of crux relationship. His father is very much the mother and the father. Of, of Turner and uh, yes yeah, so every aspect every detail of that that home life whether it's his studio or his kitchen or his bedroom you know has to be delved into and looked at so so that that's as I say that's the, the key strand that runs through the whole film whether he's venturing off to North Wales or he's at the Royal Academy you know the thing that the thread that holds the film together is in fact his domestic life and going back to the idea of minor characters 
Um, having obviously it's a Mike Lee film, so he's bound to focus in on relationships and so on. Um, those two women, those key women in Turner's life, there's so little on them that in fact, you know, the two actresses became world experts on those two characters as well. So Marion Bailey, who plays Mrs. Booth, went to the British Library and started listening to really old recordings of Kentish folk and picked up some fabulous local dialect you know, of dialect that's now died. It's gone completely. Um, and uh, and also went to Dover to see where Mrs Booth came from, tried to delve into the husband's, her previous husband's life. And, and that sort of brings such a richness to her character. And I think in all the instances with all the actors, I think you there's a lot of research there, but I think what you see is the tip of the iceberg because the research should be worn lightly. It, you, hopefully you're not feeling like you're being told <laughs> that this all this information about this character is being worn lightly and it's as if you are looking and hearing the actual historical character rather than the actor playing that character. Of course, the important detail in uh, Mr Turner is that we are watching an artist and, of course, Tim Spool therefore had to learn how to paint. And, and in fact, on, in, on your website, you can see you've got some stills of, of Tim's version of Snowstorm in a Harbour's Mouth, which is one of the great works by Turner. Yes, exactly. Um, so, yes, uh, Tim learnt to paint with Tim Wright, who is a mainly a portrait painter. I think he'd be, he wouldn't mind me saying that. Um, but uh, he spent two years learning how to paint. He went, he did a kind of, um, you know, a, a year of art training. He went from drawing, you know, a figure walking around the studio and and still lives, pots, dead birds, you know, the usual stuff if you've done your art. <laughs> you know, exactly the type of thing that is always in an artist's studio or an art school. Um, and then he went right the way through. And as you say, he ends up doing, well, I thought a fabulous, his own version of Snowstorm Steamboat over Harbour's Mouth. Actually extraordinary. Really got to the sort of heart and soul of Turner. Uh, we actually had an exhibition at Petworth House, which, of course, was one of the sets. It was one of the key sets in the film. And uh, I had an exhibition of um, uh, costume, but also some of the items from the set, the props, etc. But also a run of images by by Tim showing you the progression that those two years, over those two years, how amazing the progression was um, to being able to imitate Turner. And when you see him on screen, you're not really seeing him doing a lot in a painting way, but when you see him doing the painting, you believe he knows exactly what he's doing, whether it's painting a very fine, precise, horizontal line or whether he's doing that sort of fabulous sort of varnishing day slip slap <laughs> all over Staffer, his wonderful painting of Staffer. Um, whether he's doing that, it, you sort of feel he's, a, he's somebody who's in control of that brush and, and the oil, oil, oil paint and so on. So that's, that's the key to it. He's got, you've got to feel that that is Turner. Of course, there are all sorts of myths that developed about Turner through his life. And what I thought was clever about Mr. Turner was that um, uh, the film was able to sort of address the, these ideas of Turner's life or, or, or our, our preconceptions, perhaps, about Turner and, and also some of the kind of criticisms of Turner as this sort of slapdash painter. And, and so, in a way, he, it's, it's a means of encapsulating both the sort of reality of his presence but also some of the debates about Turner that happened in his own time yeah and I think that's done I think it's done very subtly and I think uh, I mean you've said it you you felt it was very impressive the way it's done and I think it is it brings all the you know art historical discussion to bear without being I think too heavy-handed about it you have artists talking about art about Claude Lorraine you know <laughs> all this, you know you've got Ruskin obviously so art is bound to art history art hit theory is bound to come into it um, but I think again it's all done in a way that's very comprehensible for a much broader audience you know Turner's life was actually relatively uneventful there's no Van Gogh moment there's no cutting off of an ear or you know he's he suffers what other people suffer the death of a parent and so on and he has his highs and lows professionally but they're mainly highs I think there's no two ways highly successful British artist um, but I think that that role of the life you know from vignette to vignette as it were I think creates something that's much bigger than the sum of its parts. Has the way that you research altered as a result of researching for a film as opposed for as opposed to for a book I think um, I've learned a lot working with Mike because I think it's all you know that that thing about the devil being in the detail or at least know what the detail is even if Mike's going to ignore it you know he wants to know the detail he wants to know what he thinks happened what we think happened what probably happened and then he can make a sort of considered decision but ultimately it's an artwork not a not a documentary and so on as a historian it's it's made me really concentrate on character 
on on describing individuals as opposed to just saying Turner walked into the room, you know, and delivered his lecture and then left. When you've worked on a film and you've had to show that, you've had to actually animate that and fill in all the details from what's sitting behind him, what diagrams are actually sitting behind him while he's delivering the lecture, what does the podium look like, what's he dressed in, who's there, what sort of audience is there you suddenly realise that there is, there's a lot to that detail. It's wonderful. It really does bring history and art history alive. So I'm very much, you know, more live to character, narrative, descriptions of period and place, much more so than perhaps you might think you should be. But, um, but it's, it's just, it is, it's that animating of history. And I think you can, once you've worked on a film, because it's so visual, obviously, you're, you're reenacting history, aren't you, in a way? Um, that it, you can't help as a visual person, you can't help but think about it and then almost describe what you're seeing in your head, you know, almost as if you're watching a film and describing it. So I think that, that sort of uh, freedom, that sort of creative freedom is wonderful. Obviously, you know, as historians and art historians, we have to have our footnotes, we have to sort of, <laughs> you know, you can't make it up. <laughs> uh, obviously in a film you can, you, you have the, quite the right to do so, it's an artwork. Um, but I think it, you know, I think a bit more flexibility, a bit more sort of, you know, hanging out a bit more, you know, <laughs> being a little, little less uptight <laughs> and having a bit more fun with history and art history in that sense. I think it's something I've certainly learned work, working with Mike. That phrase of Mike's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not a documentary, it's an artwork, it's a film. And hopefully it's entertainment as well. well, yeah, well he, yes, exactly. He, he really does want you to walk away, not feeling like you've been bashed over the head <laughs> in an art history lesson, that in fact you have enjoyed what you've seen. A piece of, you know, humanity, a piece of life played out in front of you, yeah. But it, it's interesting, isn't it, because I, I imagine as a historian there must have been moments where... Well, you tell me, were there moments where the artistic license felt like it was creeping in the wrong direction to a certain extent? <laughs> now, as I say, you know, you're there to provide all the information that Mike asks for and sometimes stuff he hasn't asked for. <laughs> um, but ultimately, it's, it's Mike's decision. Now, you know, I could I might have occasionally stamped my little art historical foot. Um, but ultimately, it's, it's, it's Mike's decision. And actually, Mike surrounds himself with people he trusts. So if you do occasionally stamp your little foot, you know, he is going to pause and listen to you and then say, well, actually, you know, I've heard what you said, but we're doing it this way. And that's it. That's your job to do. Um, now, in the context of Peter Lou, which is the most recent film I've worked on, um, I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to actually produce a book after having worked on the film. So whatever little art historical stamping of feet <laughs> I might have had during the course of the filming, you know, in a, in a sense, I was able to express my own version, as it were, of the history through the book. So I had, it was a kind of win-win from that point of view. So lastly, I know you're writing a book and uh, curating an exhibition about Hogarth. The other you... most famous British <laughs> yeah, artist <right>. ever. <laughs> uh, are you sort of prodding Mike Lee in, the, in that general direction? I might send him a couple of little nudges, you know, <laughs> through the post. Um, yeah, well, who knows? You know, if Mike ever wanted to do a Mr. Hogarth, that would be great. Um, but yes, the focus at the moment is the exhibition at the Foundling, which is on Hogarth's Jacobite paintings. So on March to Finchley, obviously, because it's the Foundling, but also uh, Calais Gate, Lord Lovett and all that kind of thing, all the juicy sort of political um, civil war stuff. Um, and also a biography of William Hogarth, which should be out in January 2021. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Mike Lee's Mr Turner is available to buy or rent on iTunes and at other streaming services or, of course, on Blu-ray and DVD. Peterloo is available to stream on Amazon Prime and also to rent or buy there and elsewhere. Jacqueline Riding's Peterloo, The Story of the Manchester Massacre, is published by Head of Zeus and is £8.99. If you're listening to this on the 6th of September and in London, there's a free screening and discussion between Jackie and Mike Lee at Tate Britain this evening. Visit tate.org.uk for all the details. We'll be back with Jasmine Thomas-Gervin and Chris Ophelia after this. Most people spent the 1st of January 2000 nursing a sore head, but not so Banksy. The artist, who was at that time more or less unknown, began to decorate a vast lorry that belonged to a circus troupe. It took him two weeks to finish, and for the next few years the truck travelled around the world, covered with distinctive artwork of flying monkeys, red stars and a monumental male figure swinging a hammer, indeed featuring many of the images calling for social anarchy that have been central to Banksy's work since. 
Now the work, Turbo's own truck, laugh now but one day we'll be in charge, will be offered at Bonham's motorcar sale, the Goodwood Revival Auction on 14th of September, where the truck will be on the block amongst the Bugattis and Bentleys, and with an estimate of 1 to 1.5 million. As Ralph Taylor, Bonham's global head of post-war and contemporary art, said, the composition bears all the hallmarks of this peerless agent provocateur. Bonhams is thrilled to have the opportunity to continue offering the best of his work at auction, as we've done consistently for well over a decade. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, Chris Ophelia won the Turner Prize in 1998 and represented Britain at the Venice Biennale in 2003. But a major shift in his career came when he moved to Trinidad permanently in 2005. He'd been visiting the Caribbean islands since 2000, and one of the artists he met there was Jasmine Thomas Girvan, who was then predominantly making jewellery. Their friendship has deepened over the years, and now they're showing their work together at the David's Verner Gallery in London, the latest in many shows Ophelia's had in the UK capital, but Thomas Girvan's very first exhibition in the UK. I went to the gallery to meet them. Did you start talking about each other's work to each other at a particular point. We just worked, yeah. Mm, I think it probably is still the same now. Yeah. In that, you know, this conversation with between us is happening in, in the gallery rather than um, between us two talking about each other's work. And I think there's something um, quite special that things can happen in that way. I think artists in general, um, can find it quite challenging to articulate some of the more, the true core of what the work is about, really. I mean, we can talk about materials and how did you do that, and I like that. But to actually get to the essence of what the work's about, it takes time, and I think maybe to force it in a way where we sit down and actually try and talk about things. I enjoyed being relatively anonymous, um, when I was Trinidad and I also don't think you saw much work because I didn't make much work when I first went to Trinidad and it was an opportunity to what I say um, make things that can fail in a way so that you can figure out what your boundaries are and what your limits are at the time within your work uh, So what did that anonymity that you talk about give you in, in Trinidad both of you? So I, we, I'm Jamaican, and we were due to be in Trinidad for only four years, and um, we decided to stay because um, when you don't belong to a place, it, it doesn't hold on to you or lay claim to you, and it gives you the space to, to do what you're supposed to do, which is to work. And um, so we treasured that, and we stayed. I think, I think yeah, I think Trinidad's interesting in that way. I think people it's hard to put my finger on it but I think sometimes you get the feeling that people are actually quite nonchalant about the idea of um, uh, success related to notoriety Um, I think people are very encouraging of of achievement but um, notoriety isn't so um, I don't know people don't people um, leave you be right right and and I I um, like that very much about Trinidad, and I never feel um, crowded out really um, in a way that I might in other places. Mm-hmm. And and I think the nature of um, what I do, and I, I think I think what what I understand of what Jasmine does is to be able to have that um, physical space, but also creative mind space to be able to evolve really with. Um, with the work but also evolve as a person through the work one of the crucial evolutions of your work jasmine has been the evolution from jewelry into sculpture and installation can you tell me a bit about how your work has developed over time in trinidad um i think that the landscape has um delivered many materials that previously were unfamiliar that have then um allowed me to to stretch the work and what I mean by that I use a lot of natural materials and some of them um, have been a lot larger in scale than the materials that I've used before and so it's been a very organic process um, I incorporate some of the metal smithing and um, silver smithing skills that I have but I have basically um, 
stretched it. And in terms of the ideas as well, um, you know, Trinidad, because of the, it's a multicultural um, space, it has triggered a lot of interest in other cultures and forms. And I think that that also has allowed the work to grow. Did you think that you were making a change in what you were doing? It was a very natural um, transition. Mm. Because it is still very intricate. Mm. It's just changed scale. The mm. subject matter is pretty much the same. Mm. It's become a little bit more complex. Mm. But um, it was not a conscious shift. Mm. Mm. No, I, I fully understand it. It's just that um, I remember um, feeling though as though I understood what you did. And then... Um, all of a sudden, it was for me, um, and this is not, by no means a criticism in a negative sense. For me, it felt like there was a building up of, of vocabulary with your um, jewelry work, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, maybe I didn't see what you did for a while, but then I saw your work, and it just felt like it had a full blown vocabulary and a greater range in this mode that you're in now, for want of a better word. That you could say more, that I could, I felt as I could see more and uh, and read more and understand more, and it didn't, um, it wasn't like you got rid of anything. Actually, mm-hmm. it didn't felt feel like you jettisoned anything. Mm-hmm. Just felt that you had opened up the possibilities of of um, what was a very um, um, tightly controlled way of working, and almost like a period of med- like deep meditation in the jewelry work. And then it was almost like it just released it and it seemed so at ease with the change in scale, which surprised me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe some of that has to do with actually the change in physical space. Mm-hmm. So whereas you are, when you're creating jewellery, it is on a very at a bench in a very confined space. Mm-hmm. When you have a studio space that has the expanse of the walls, it, it, it then allows for the work to breathe into it, mm-hmm. I think. Mm. That was a part of it. Mm. Mm. And, that, and I think for me, that's what I found so exciting that um, it reads a sculpture, but the um, the connection to the minute um, seems so almost human, really. The, the way that we have like a really micro understanding of things, but then we deal with like the the globe perhaps through the internet and communication. But I just didn't feel. I feel that there's just so much range in the work, and that's what's exciting for me and and exciting to understand or to guess or to anticipate or to hope where the work can go from here really i'm really interested in the way that you respond to the specifics of the environment of trinidad both of you chris you have talked in the past about the very particular light in trinidad can you explain what you mean by that Hmm. yeah i mean what i've meant before is and and I think still feel now is that um, the best light in Trinidad is in the shade. Sometimes that the um, intensity of the you know in this part of the world people talk about like the northern light in the studio and it's coming from that one direction and it's the most beautiful light. But in Trinidad, because um, it's so close to the equator, the sun is up and above your head and um, very very quickly and then it's down and um, below the horizon um, very quickly at the end of the day. So um, with that comes heat. And I think in the shade, you get um, more more light play, more dappled light, more dancing light, more mysterious light. If you go on walks in the forest, you'll find yourself on one side of the sun and then on on the shady side of, of a valley. And you'll see more you know, leaves doing wonderful things. But then also there's a period of time, um, I don't know if it's the same in Raval, but around five o'clock, um, you get to about 5.30, you'll get this very um, kind of magical light that seems to increase the intensity of colour. And um, the light will just, um, that sweet period of time with the light will just close quickly like a Venus flytrap and start to squeeze the the um, luminosity out of the day. And then it turns into night. And, and the length of night time is almost the same as the amount of daytime. So we have this 
waking hours when it's almost almost dark. But in that time, I think I learned to appreciate the darkness more than I did um, the pursuit of light as a as a painter. And um, you start to see how um, natural forms, and I think a lot of the forms that Jasmine is talking about in in nature, start to have an appeal at nighttime as well as they do at daytime, but a different type of appeal because... Um, it's more mysterious and you're not quite sure what it is that you're looking at. So the imagination gets triggered and nourished by not knowing rather than by knowing. And, and how does that manifest in your work? I mean, can, can, you, can you look at your paintings and say, I can, I can see a marked shift mm-hmm. in my work, which is undoubtedly influenced by that experience of learning? I've, I've made, tried to make some paintings that um, address that with, a, a group of blue paintings but I think you were asking me before about how Trinidad has had some influence on my work and I and I like um, kind of mystical quality of Trinidad and the folklore way of telling um, stories about reality and twisting reality and delivering um, a understanding of the past that might not be factual but allows us to tell stories I like the idea for me that you can um, fuse um, the made up with the true and um, I become more interested in ancient mythology and how I confuse that with contemporary mythology and local mythology um, I just feel that I, my sense of artistic license has not been squeezed there that actually has been been opened out jasmine you one senses that level of mythology very much in your work but it's also very rooted in social realities and and social history and the history of slavery for instance Let, let's take for example the work parallel realities which is this extraordinary dinner table which features all manner of extraordinary quite brutal uh, visions emerging from plates and cups. Can you tell me about what those elements are and, and how you begin to compose a piece like this? Laying a table for the ancestors. Um, this is something that is done um, routinely in African spirituality. And um, before the Marat Bay Rebellion in Jamaica, there was a meeting to initiate um, people who were involved, um, and it was called a tea ceremony. And I just found that very interesting because tea is a very um, British um, thing, and it kind of denotes civility. In terms of commodities, tea and sugar, basically, um, are both products that have fueled the British economy. I I wanted to reflect on complexity of the things that we revere. And um, in the Caribbean, to do the right thing is to, I wouldn't say maybe mimic is a strong word, but to be very, um, to do the right thing, to be British, to um, uh, be proper colonial subjects. And I remember as a child, my mother buying a, a set of china. Um, and it was something that I know that she spent a lot of money on over time. And it was never used. It was the fact that it was acquired. So we spend a lot of time trying to recreate uh, this image of what we should be. And when you think of the plantation economy... Here it is that you have a a very beautiful uh, setting and really at the root of it is something that was extremely brutal. And literally, um, the empire was feeding off the bodies of um, the slaves and black people. And so um, it was important for me to present that, the very beautiful, civilised setting um, juxtaposed with the reality of it. And so you have the machete that is in the very centre of the table, and the machete is like the symbol of um, the 
uh, warrior forces in um, the Maroons. The Maroons were the slaves that ran away. And I wanted to create a kind of counter-narrative, and that is why you see things falling over. You see hands um, coming out of, of, of um, serving dishes. Um, there are children there, I think, uh, that are trying to escape. A big part of the project was civilization through humiliation, really, and that I think that religion and education has played a very significant role um, in in um, as a tool. So there is um, the head that you see open; the, the brain is revealed. On on one of the plates, there's mm-hmm. a text, mm-hmm. and I'll read it because it's 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 a shocking text. It reads. To deprive them of causing their own deaths, they put a tin mask on their faces. And this was something that was... This is from a, 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 an article, a book called Runaway Slave from you know, Rio de Janeiro. Now, what I thought was so powerful about that was that you recreated the mask, but using your exquisite jewellery techniques. And so somehow the brutality is all the more visceral through being created so painstakingly by you again mm-hmm. um yeah i think that's we actually do not realize we talk a lot about um slavery and the slave trade but i don't think we realize the extent of the brutality and i think that it, it, there is a tremendous amount of wounding that exists and until we actually lay bare the specifics of it like that we really do not uh, we can't reckon with it. So in that case, when the slaves actually uh, ran away and were caught, most of them knew what their fate was and they would attempt suicide. And as a measure to dissuade others, they were not allowed to even um, commit suicide. Um, so they had no control over their own bodies. And um, I think that it's very important, even though it's, it seems a bit horrific, to, to juxtapose those two things because there is so much um, wrong and evil existing under the cover of something that is, is beautiful. And um, I think we just need to be more aware um, of that and not be um, mesmerized by superficial things. Yeah. You mentioned that you begun to look more at ancient myths. It seems to me that a quite an important turning point in this was the um, Metamorphosis Titian show yeah. at the National Gallery in 2012. And what I was intrigued by your response to that brief, which was to respond to Titian's great um, Ovid uh, paintings, was that you, you seem to immerse yourself more in the text mm. than Titian's paintings, which, which I suppose was a little bit maybe counterintuitive mm. I wasn't aware of the text and you know it's almost embarrassing to say that now but I wasn't aware of the text but I am aware of how timeless and, and how much it continues to give over time and I suppose that is the case with many of the great classics and why they remain um, so powerful as um, spoken stories which I think they, originally they were toy, stories that were told um, and now that they're written down we can refer to them and, and remember them and read them in private and um, Minna who was at the National Gallery at the time invited me to do this show and I and one I was scared because I thought I didn't have, I hadn't acquired the knowledge at the age that I was of an understanding at least of those texts which seemed a bit um, disappointing but then it was Titian, one of the greats really and I thought he was just demolish me really in, in <laughs> to put my word next to his it seemed overly presumptuous that I could stand up but nevertheless I was interested in the project and the idea that it could take me to other things and it did more recently with this show um, I was reading the, um, Emily Wilson's new translation of The Odyssey by Homer um, which is a story that can cons- of a man journeying um, around um, his inner self I would say more than anything but it's a story made up of many many different segments I got fixated with the um, passage of time that he spent with Calypso and that's 
some of what you'll see in the exhibition. And then uh, more recently I read um, the, more about the passage of time that you spent with Circe. Um, and that's where I think some of the work, some of the drawings um, downstairs in the galleries will kind of trying to grapple with. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you, Ben. Thanks a lot. Jasmine Thomas-Gervan and Chris Ophelia, Affinities, is at the David's Werner Gallery in London until the 21st of September. And that's all for this week. You can read all the latest news online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And do subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them, and if you enjoy it, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. And you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and we're on Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mihalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Join us next week when we look at the William Blake exhibition at Tate Britain. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.